So, we are continuing our study of the Apostle Paul's letter to a group of churches in an area called Galatia. And so, uh, it's the letter to the Galatians. As I've mentioned before, it's, a, um, it's an angry letter. It's actually the angriest letter in the New Testament. And lest you be put off by that, that's actually a good thing. Because the best way to know what really matters to somebody is figure out what makes them angry. And here we are following up on what we talked about last week, which was a time that the Apostle Paul, one of the leaders of the early church, had to confront Peter, one of the other leaders of the early church, because he was living in a way that was actually undermining what the gospel, the good news, literally what that word gospel means, um, was. And uh, I don't want to backtrack too much, but I'll just say this. Basically, Peter and Paul, both of them are Jewish. That's their heritage. That's their background. They've both come to faith in Christ. Okay, But also, God has instructed, first Peter actually, and then eventually Paul, who was called to be the apostle, the sent one to the Gentiles, to spread the gospel, the good news, take it beyond just the Jews to the Gentiles. Now, God had planned for this all along. As a matter of fact, in Isaiah, I think it's chapter 42, um, God prophesying about Jesus, about the Messiah who would come, said it's too small a thing for you just to be for the house of Israel. I will also make you a light to the Gentiles. So this was not like a left turn in Christianity. This was always God's intention. The problem was that there were, in the earliest days of the church, almost all of the Christians were Jewish culturally. And yet within that group, there were some that believed that their Jewish cultural heritage, that was fine and that was a blessing, but they, you, you didn't need to be Jewish to be a good Christian, the best kind of Christian. Then there were other Jews who believed, no, if you really want to please God, not only do you need to trust in Christ, but you also need to obey all these laws that God had revealed through the Old Testament and that the Jews had obeyed. Now, as long as everybody was Jewish culturally, eating the food, wearing Jewish clothes, there's no big deal. But when Gentiles start coming into the church who don't eat Jewish food and who don't eat and follow Jewish customs and clothes and all that stuff, and certainly they don't get circumcised, that's one thing that the non-Jews didn't do in those days, then it became a problem because some of these Jewish Christians were telling the Gentiles, hey, you actually aren't fully pleasing to God unless you also go all the way and become Jewish culturally. The reason that matters is because it sets up this like two levels of people in the church. And of course, what the Apostle Paul had been privileged to understand and to, to teach God's people in the early days was that God always intended not just to reconcile human beings to himself through the work of Jesus, but he wanted to reconcile people that hated one another, Jews and Gentiles, to each other as well, and to make one new humanity. So for you to teach that these Gentiles are not fully acceptable to God unless they also become Jewish is to actually work at cross purposes with what God had intended from the very beginning. Okay, So it's a big deal. Now, Peter agreed with Paul about this. 
And Peter and Paul tells the story in chapter one and in the first part of chapter two that they'd shook on it, they'd had a meeting, they'd agreed, yes, this, we all agree that, that, that Gentiles do not need to become Jewish to be Christian. And Peter was eating with the Gentiles. That's a big deal because that shows that he's fully accepting them, having table fellowship with them. But then some of these Jewish Christians who think Gentiles need to become Jewish show up and Peter quit eating with the Gentiles. And what Paul says is, I had to oppose him to his face. So again, this is how you know this is a big deal. If one of the early church leaders had to oppose this other church leader to his face in public, because he said, Peter, what you're doing by what you're doing with your actions are actually undermining and contradicting the good news of the gospel, which is that Jesus is enough for us to be reconciled to God. You actually say you believe that, but the fact that you're not eating with these Gentiles is making them feel like they're not good enough. That Jesus dying for them is not enough. And that's a really big deal. Now, Paul talks a lot about the Old Testament in this letter. Tonight, though, we're going to actually talk about not just how to understand Jewishness and Christianity and how they fit together, though Paul talks a lot about that in this letter. Tonight, we're actually going to talk more about how Christians have misunderstood some really important verses in chapter 2. And here's what I'd say as a way of introduction. Not everything that sounds spiritual and that gets repeated a lot in Christian circles and in worship songs is actually true. And while some may use this and even despair, well then how can we actually know what's true? I think the better solution is to look more carefully at what the scriptures actually teach. Now again, that's kind of the heart of what Paul's doing in this letter. As we're going to see, we get into chapters 3 and 4, Paul's going to go back over the Old Testament and say to these Jewish Christians who think Gentiles need to become Jewish, you guys have missed the point of the Old Testament. So he's going to get into that. But tonight, like I said, I want to talk about some verses that modern Christians have routinely misunderstood. And this is not just abstract splitting of theological hairs. The longer I've been a Christian... And the longer I've been a pastor, I've now worked with students at Belmont for over 28 years, the more firmly I believe something that Martin Luther said 500 years ago is so exactly right. He said that bad theology is a cruel taskmaster. Bad theology puts us in bondage. And the bad theology we want to talk about tonight uh, in particular, denies what it means to be fully human. And that's a big deal. So let's read the passage. In, uh, follow along. Chapter 2 of Galatians. I'm going to read verses 15 through 21. So again, this is the end of what Paul is telling the Galatians he said to Peter. Okay? So he got in his face. He said, basically, you're denying the gospel, Peter. You're not walking in line with the truth of the gospel by the way you're acting. And then he starts to rehearse the gospel to clarify the gospel for Peter and to clarify the gospel again for the Galatians. 
So Paul says this, we ourselves, and the we he's talking about, he's talking to Peter. Peter, you and I are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Remember I told you last week, that's a slur. Paul is not using it. Paul is repeating the slur that these Jewish Christians we call the Judaizers were saying about the Gentiles. They're dirty, they're sinners. It is a slur. And Paul is saying, basically, Peter, even if you don't agree with that slur, you basically are treating them like that's true. So he says, Peter, we ourselves, you and me, are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also, you and me, Peter, we have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. It's a good thing, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. What does it mean to be justified? It means to be beautiful in God's sight. The only way you can be beautiful in God's sight is not by what you do, but by what Jesus has done, and you taking credit for that by faith. But, Paul says in verse 17, if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, to, be, uh, to, to, to believe that we're beautiful in Christ, we too were found to be sinners. Is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose, for nothing. Now, I feel like when I read that, even reading that, I'm like, I have to explain this. The syntax is a little confusing. So trust me, I'm gonna, I'm gonna rephrase it for you tonight as we go through this. But even that last verse, you get the point. This is a really big deal. What Paul's saying is, is if, if, you don't, if, if you don't get this, what you basically are saying is Christ died for nothing. That's a big deal. Let's pray, and then we're going to dig into this. Oh, Jesus, help us to uh, not just to understand this, but to be passionate about this, because this is everything. This is everything. This is our only hope. And it is a good and glorious and solid hope. Help us to be assured of that, convinced of that afresh tonight. We pray you'd send your spirit to help us in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to look at a couple things here. First, we're going to look briefly at how Paul summarizes the gospel, verses 15 and 16. Then we're going to see this objection that he's dealing with, that he anticipates in verse 17 and 18, which is basically, if I show myself still to be a sinner, then does that mean that grace and this gospel, this good news, makes you lazy and makes you a sinner? And then is that God's fault? Uh, and then we're going to look at this issue. What does it mean to die to the law? That seems to be pretty important. It's, we need to understand that. And then... One of the most misunderstood verses in the New Testament, what does it mean to be crucified with Christ and to no longer live? Okay, so that's what we're going to talk about tonight. Verse 15, to be justified, like I said, is to be declared beautiful in God's sight because you've done everything he required. 
And you might think, well, how can that be possible? I haven't done everything that God required. Jesus, you remember, said that you need to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, not just some of the time, from the moment you're born to the moment you die. He, he, he didn't give any out there. When people think, well, you know, God grades on a curve. God does not grade on a curve. God requires that we glorify God as we were intended to do. And Jesus doesn't lessen that one bit. But what Jesus does do is he lives and dies in the place of sinners. He lives and dies in their place. Now, Paul is saying here, basically, there's two ways that you can try to be beautiful in God's sight. You can do it through what he calls works of the law or through faith in Christ. There's no other way. There's no compromise. There's no a little bit of this and a little bit of that. It's one or the other. Now, remember, the gospel, that word means literally good news. And it's news about something God has done. It's not advice about what we need to do. So when people say, well, I shared the gospel with somebody, a lot of times when I hear them say that, I say, well, explain, what do you mean by that? And a lot of times, like, well, I told them they need to do this and they need to pray this prayer and use these words and, and do this. I'm like, well, did you announce what God did in Christ? That's the gospel. That's the good news. To share the gospel means to talk about what God has done. Is there a response that we should make to that? Of course. As a matter of fact, that word was usually used in the first century for a news of a military victory that would change the condition of the people who heard about it. It's a perfect word to understand. What Jesus did changes everything. And for those who hear it and understand it and trust in it, it changes everything, right? But there is a difference between forgiveness and righteousness, at the very end of verse 21, he uses this word righteousness. If righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. So really what God wants is righteousness. What is that? That again is the beauty, the beauty of being perfectly beautiful in God's sight. Now, forgiveness, forgiveness is half the way there. If you think that what Jesus came to do was to forgive us, that's good, he did, but that's only part of it. Because imagine, think of it this way, if there was a book and God wrote down everything you said, everything you thought, everything you did in that book, forgiveness alone would mean that when you become a Christian, your book gets wiped clean. All blank pages. The problem is, you need a book full of loving the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. You don't need blank pages. I don't care how many times you start over with blank pages, you're going to fail. But what the gospel is, the good news, is that Jesus didn't just die on a cross, he also lived a perfect life. He's the one who said, it is my meat and drink to do the will of my Father. And when the, the most difficult time to obey his father happened in the Garden of Gethsemane, because for Jesus it got progressively more difficult the closer he got to the cross to do the will of his father. Finally, 
It said his sweat in the Garden of Gethsemane was like drops of blood, agonizing. And still he says, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. When you become a Christian, you don't just get your book wiped clean. God switches the covers. And you have the beauty of getting credit for what Jesus did. And here's the great thing. You know what God has said about Jesus? This is my son in whom I am well pleased. That's what he says about all those who put their faith in him. To add anything to that might seem like, well, why not? Why not try to be the best person I can be just to cover my bases? But what the Apostle Paul is saying is, no, if you do that, you're not actually really trusting in Jesus alone. You actually are doing sort of dishonor to what he did. You, you may think that you're trying to, to cover your bases, but you're actually saying, I'm not really sure that Jesus did enough. And that's a big deal. There can be no real peace if you think that you need to add something to what Jesus did for you to secure the smile of God. Because as I said last week, Jesus plus your work equals salvation and the smile of God means that the smile of God is a variable because you're a variable. Okay? That's how it works. I know I didn't take calculus, but I know algebra, and I know that that's how that works. All right. So then what is Paul saying here in verse 17? Let me, this is a tricky, tricky thing. Let me try to paraphrase what he's saying here. This isn't the, the first and only time that Paul anticipates this objection. Uh, here's, here's the objection. Basically, Paul is, is answering this objection. Why, why, or sorry, that's the wrong way to say it. Doesn't this gospel that Jesus is enough lead us to be lazy? And might it not even cause us to not really care very much about how we live? And thus, couldn't you even say that if we don't have to do anything, Jesus does everything, that it might actually promote even more sin. Seems like a reasonable objection. And here's what Paul says, basically. He says, okay, if after becoming a Christian, I'm still seen to be one who sins, does that mean that what Christ has done for me should get the blame for my sin? If after I've received Jesus into my life, I'm shown to still be a sinner, should Christ get the blame? And what Paul says is, absolutely not. If after receiving righteousness, beauty in God's sight, by faith, you try to go back and add to it your own works, what that shows is, why you needed Jesus in the first place. Because you're a sinner. And part of your sin is struggling to believe that the gospel is enough. Like, it's not like the thing you need to do is perfectly believe. No, even your belief is full of holes. So, the fact that you fall back sometimes, like Peter did, doesn't mean that Jesus didn't do enough. It doesn't mean that Jesus and his work promote sin. It just means 
once again how much you need him to do it for you. It proves again why you needed grace, because you're still a sinner. But Paul goes on to say, but I really am different now. I have died to the law. In other words, the law no longer condemns me and controls me by its condemnation, and I no longer serve the law as a slave seeking to earn God's approval. Therefore, now I can actually live for God. You see, until I died to the law and died to trying to earn God's approval by the law, I was basically living for myself, not living for God. All the religious stuff I was doing was trying to get God over a barrel, trying to secure what he thinks about me. It's like living in a relationship with a human being when you're really not sure what they think about you. And every time you're around them, you just become incredibly self-conscious and you're just trying to make sure you don't say the wrong thing or slip up in some sort of way. It's awful. It's awful. And the only thing that can bring real peace is to be so secure in their love that you can actually be yourself. That's what, why dating's so weird, you know? Because it's like you're trying to be yourself, but you're also trying to put, of course, your best foot forward, and you're also trying to assess this person, but you want them to also be themselves and not putting on a show. It's a mess, isn't it? <laughs> well, I'm sorry. I'm not in that world anymore. And I'm so glad. But it's one of the reasons I, wasn't, I didn't get married until I was in my 30s, honestly. Because that's just a nightmare, and, and it's difficult. And that's a great message on the day before Hall uh, Valentine's, right? All right. Well, you know, um, yeah, let me jump on to the next one. What does it mean to die to the law afterwards? What does it mean to die to the law? It doesn't mean that the law no longer has any role for Christians. Uh, the Apostle Paul, many other places, matter of fact, even later in Galatians, we'll see, and uh, all the rest of the New Testament says that the law, meaning the Ten Commandments, is an expression of what human flourishing looks like. Uh, Eugene Peterson, who translated the uh, Bible into what we call the message, which I think is a helpful translation at times, especially if you've read the Bible a lot and you want like a fresh take on some things, I, I recommend it. Um, he says that the Ten Commandments, you should think of them this way, the Ten Conditions for Human Community to Flourish. A community in which people's words are taken seriously and can be trusted, where people's property matters, where people's relationships are held in honor, right? Where we worship God and not other things, which is always dehumanizing, both for the one worshiping and the one worshiped. Those are the 10 conditions for community to flourish. And, and so the law is always good. It is good, right? So it doesn't mean, dying to the law does not mean the law has no more relevance for Christians. We're not free to just live however we want. As a matter of fact, it's one of the reasons I don't wear one of those WWJD bracelets, because we don't have to wonder what would Jesus do. Jesus did the law. As he said, it was my meat and drink to do the will of my Father. But we are to live in a new way, and that's what Paul's talking about here. He's saying that before he died to the law, he was unable to live for God. And this is the kind of thing that's very confusing to religious people. Because they'll look and they'll be like, I'm really living for God. And like, yeah, but are you? You can't actually live for God unless you're secure in his love for you. You may be doing a lot of religious stuff, 
But Paul says, I was not able to do it for God until I died to the law. What does that mean? It means that until he was set free from trying to earn God's approval by everything he did, trying to change what God thought about him by what he did, his obedience was for himself, to put himself in a better position related to God. It wasn't really for God. It's an old uh, preacher illustration, but I, I think it's a helpful story. A story told about a king who um, was in his throne room and had a farmer come and bring him a, uh, a, a cow. And the king was very touched and said, wow, what a, what a wonderful gift. I'm going to grant you this, uh, this wonderful piece of property. It's wonderful. Well, there was this other guy kind of sitting in the throne room there, hearing what happened. He thought, geez, you know, this guy for a cow, you know, he got this, this nice piece of property. I'm going to give him like a war horse, and I wonder what, what I'll get. And uh, so the next day, he brings this war horse to the king, presents it to the king, and the king says, thanks. The guy's like, what's up? <laughs> what's the deal? And he goes, the farmer gave me the cow, but you gave yourself the war horse. Do you understand? Why you do what you do matters. Christian obedience is not just external, keeping the rules. It matters why. And if you're doing it to secure the love of God, well, here's the problem. You don't do it purely. And I know that. And here's one of the great lies that holds so many people in bondage. I talk to students all the time who are trying to figure out the difference between their will and God's will, and how much of it is their desire versus God. And I'm like, you will never figure that out. Uh, you know, the prophet Jeremiah says, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond understanding. Do you really think you're going to figure that out? No, you're not going to figure that out. Quit trying to figure that out. Just know that you're a mixed bag all the time. There's sin mixed up in everything you do. So you're never going to be able to obey God fully from the heart in a way that's going to earn his smile. He sees to the heart. Now, some people think that's good news. You know, God looks on the heart. <laughs> that's actually the worst possible news, <laughs> if you understand your heart, okay? God is not fooled like you can fool people. Some of you are probably pretty good at fooling people, but God is not fooled, right? And so he looks on the heart. What does Paul mean that it was through the law that he died to the law? That's a weird phrase, but it's really important. Romans chapter 7, Paul goes into more details about this. It's basically like part of his testimony. So he was very rigorous Jewish believer, very scrupulous in obeying the law, the Ten Commandments, okay? And if you asked him, he would have been like the rich young ruler who basically Jesus like, you know, what does the law say? And he's like, I've obeyed all these commandments from my youth. And remember, Jesus just looks at him sadly. Just looks at him sadly because he's so um, deceived about his own condition. Well, Paul was that way. He thought, I've done all these things. And then he says, I got to do not covet. Do not covet. Which means don't long for things that aren't yours. And, and, and you know what happened? He says that basically that law sprang to life. He realized that one is internal. All the other ones are external, and I've done a pretty good job. But that one actually is an internal thing 
what if all of them are actually internal things? Oh, crap. And of course, this is what Jesus said, that it's not just about not you know, committing adultery. If you lust after a woman in your heart, you've broken that commandment. The Ten Commandments were always internal, but you could convince yourself you were doing a good job if you didn't see that until you got to do not covet because that's internal. He said, when I saw do not covet, the law killed me. <laughs> but that's a good thing. It made me despair of being able to earn the smile of God. It made me despair of being able to keep the law. And I knew that my only hope was to turn from my good deeds and my bad deeds, as David Dixon, the old Scottish Puritan said, to Christ and in him I can have peace. That's what he means. It was through the law, actually doing the work of showing him that he actually can't obey the law that caused him to despair and it actually set him free. Because most of the slavery in our life, this is another line from Eugene Peterson, most of the slavery in our life is refusing to embrace our finiteness. It's thinking if I was just a little more clever, if I just had a few more friends, a little more talent, I was a little smarter, I did a little better on that exam or that paper, then I would have the life I want. That will hold you in bondage forever. And of course, there's all kinds of products that will offer to give you that last little tweak you need to give you the life that you want. It's the whole world we live in. It's basically a world that you cannot actually survive in. And then they offer you products that offer to give you that last little thing you need to make it work. And it never will. That's what it's like to try to earn the smile of God. To die to the law means to die to obedience as a principle for achieving life and approval for God. And as long as we're trying to use our obedience or looking down on other people because that makes us feel better about what we've done or not done, as long as we're doing that, we will be in bondage forever. Until we tr quit trying to use our performance to please God, we'll never be set free from needing to perform for him. You have to give it up completely. This is why Martin Luther said that faith is a living, daring hope. It's not covering your bases. It's putting all of your chips on one number on Jesus, the sure foundation. All right, last thing. What does it mean to be crucified with Christ? Now, you know, in the first century, uh, A.W. Tozer, I, I love this line from one of his books years ago that I read when I was your age. He said, in the first century, nobody wore a cross. The cross wore men. The cross wore people. People didn't wear crosses. It would be like, and again, you know, no shame here, but it would be like having like an electric chair on your, around your neck, right? It was a symbol of execution, one of the most cruel ways of execution ever devised by human beings. It was designed to terrorize. And they only used it for people that they thought needed to be made an example of, the Romans. To be crucified is the language of a decisive change. When you take up your cross, you aren't coming back, okay? So I've been crucified with Christ, 
is the language, it's about the strongest language you could use in the first century for a decisive change has happened. I didn't just get a little helping hand, like I died, okay? But what does that mean? Well, the Bible says that we died with Christ. Theologians use the term union with Christ. And we have been raised with him. That Christ's death counts for our death. Christ being raised again counts for us being raised to new life. This is a, what's called the mystical union of the believer with Christ. The phrase in Christ is all over the place in the New Testament. And this is what it's getting at. It's why um, this great old Baptist preacher, Charles Spurgeon, used the phrase this, upon a life I have not lived, upon a death I did not die, I stake my whole eternity. That's what it means to be a Christian, okay? So he says that I have been crucified. But what is the I who's been crucified? What is the I who died? And it goes back to this, Again, this is expounded on in Romans chapter 6. But the I is me, Kevin Twitt, slave to sin. That identity has been crucified. It hasn't just been damaged. It's been put to death. Paul makes the same point in Colossians chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. I put this on your outline. He says, do not lie to each other. Since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. And here's where a lot of people get confused here. My identity as a slave to sin has been crucified. It's gone. But what is my new identity? One who struggles. My new identity is one who struggles, one who is being renewed, as Paul says. So it's not like I'm gone and I get replaced by Christ who's perfect. Oh, I get replaced at the judgment seat of God. He looks upon Christ's obedience rather than mine. But the life I live, Paul says, I live by faith in Christ. This is where people go astray. They... they, take the first half of this verse and they forget the rest of it. They're like, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. So I'm just gonna let go and let God just flow through me like an empty vessel. It's kind of like though, you know, what does it mean to let Christ flow through you like an empty vessel? Have you ever really tried to do that? You ever really like tried to get out of the way? I think of it like trying to get your kids to go to sleep on Christmas Eve. (laughs) You know, and you ever tried to go to sleep at like six at night, hoping that Christmas morning would come sooner? Like, it doesn't really work very well, you know, unless you drug your kids, I guess, you know. But <laughs> I'm just teasing. We never did that. Never did that. But it's, that, it's like, it sounds like a really good spiritual idea. I just need to get out of the way. But you know what? That's actually incredible bondage. To think that Jesus can't work unless I get out of the way. If that's true, I'm without hope in the world. I am without hope in the world. Yet this is what's talked about all the time in so many Christian books. I see this idea. Paul is not saying that he ceases to exist. That's why he goes on and says, the life I now live. He still has a life to live. 
And he does it by faith. He does it by reference to what Jesus did living and dying in his place. He's not saying, I just get out of the way and Jesus just takes over. And I'm like a robot and he just like, he like operates. Or I'm like a marionette and he just like operates the puppet strings. And spirituality is just trying to get so in tune with the spirit that I don't even have to think about anything. No, that is dehumanizing. It's not at all what the Christian life is about. It's not. He says, the life I live, Christ does not replace him and live for him. That's what so many people think about this, that somehow Christ replaces us and thus we don't really live. Um, this is it's called by various names, this theology. It's called sometimes the victorious life. Sometimes it's called let go and let God. Sometimes it's called Keswick teaching after a conference in England, though they don't teach this at that conference anymore. It's, you guys know my next door neighbor, Sam Alberry has reminded me. Um, the higher life movement sometimes. Uh, but it's actually the kind of thing that sounds so spiritual, it puts you in terrible bondage. Here's a popular book. I'm not going to tell you who wrote this. But trust me, best-selling author. Numerous, numerous books. That if you haven't read, I suspect your parents probably have. A Christian, there's a quote, a Christian is held captive by anything that hinders the abundant an effective, spirit-filled life God planned for him or her. We don't have to wonder if he's willing and able to deliver us from the bonds that are withholding abundant life. Remember, it's for freedom that Christ has set us free. Yeah, that's John 8. He's more than willing. He's ready. The question is whether we are ready to cooperate and prepare the way for our liberator. Guys, that is not the gospel. It sounds spiritual, but it's bondage. It's actually the most man-centered theology you can imagine in the most insidious way. Because unlike saying you need to read your Bible every day for God to love you, it says you need to dissolve, you need to disappear so that God can work in your life. And if you have any problems, it's because you're not yielded enough, you're not surrendered enough, you've not gotten out of the way, you're trying to live your life and get in the way of him living his life through you. That's not the gospel. The gospel is you live your life trusting in Jesus is the one that earned the smile of God and secured the smile of God, and that sets you free. As Martin Luther said, and I know this sounds a little crazy, sin boldly. Do you know he said that? Do you know why he said that? He said because so many people are so introspectively, morbidly introspectively worrying, wondering whether this is my will or God's will. Is this sin or isn't it sin? He's like, who cares at one level? Sin has been dealt with by Jesus, so sin boldly. It's better than just sitting back and being worried about all the time and making yourself crazy. Live your life by faith in what Jesus has done. Don't try to get out of the way. And don't try to be like somebody else, like a cookie cutter Christian. You become the person God has gifted you to be. And the way that happens is by trusting in his life and death in your place, which sets you free to quit worrying about what does he think about me. So I see us, let's put it this way. Christianity is not designed to make us think less of ourselves. It's to make us think of ourselves less. Christianity is about what God thinks about you has been secured. Therefore, you don't need to worry about it all the time. And that's the thing that allows you to focus on other people and loving them. And so, so many of us have grown up 
worrying about, did I really accept Jesus into my heart? And did I really, 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 really mean it? I better make sure, I better do it again, just to be sure. And, and then you're so morbidly, introspectively worried about what does God think about you? And did you do what you need to surrender or to let him be active and working in your life like this horrible quote? And you never actually get to the, 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 the really the dessert of the Christian life which is being empowered to love other people because you don't need to always be worried about what does God think about me. Yeah, it turns the Christian life upside down. And it's, it, again, it's why there are some songs we're never gonna sing in RUF because I, I'm just not gonna sing any songs that are lying to you about the Christian life and making you think if you just tried a little harder to yield yourself and surrender yourself, then, then it would all work. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. Like Christian life is hard. It doesn't work. The true Christian is known as much by their warfare as they are by their peace. We have peace with God, but we have warfare within, and we fight against it. The Bible never actually says yield yourself to Christ except two places in the New Testament, and both of those are active senses. The Christian life is a battle. It's a battle to believe what God has said about me rather than what my heart says about me, rather than what my culture says about me and what other people say about me. That's why it's a life we live by faith in what he has done. Let me close with this. Paul throws down the gauntlet, doesn't he, in this last verse. If righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. But Christ did not die for no purpose. Christ died to secure the beauty of God for you. I love this, uh, th this quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones. I put this on the, uh, on the Instagram story because I was just so fired up to be reminded of this quote. I've used it before, but I just wanted to say it again to you guys. Clarifying the gospel like Paul does here really matters because bad theology is a cruel taskmaster. Here's Martin Lloyd-Jones, great Welsh preacher, says this, we deserve nothing but to be blotted off the face of the earth. But what has happened is that before the foundation of the world, this blessed God, these three blessed persons considered us, considered our condition, considered what would happen to us. And the consequence was that these three persons, God, whom man has never seen, stooped to consider us and planned a way whereby we might be forgiven and redeemed. The son said, I will leave this glory for a while I will dwell in the womb of a woman. I will be born as a babe. I will become a pauper. I will suffer insult in the world. I will even allow them to nail me to a cross and spit in my face. He volunteered to do all that for us. And at this very moment, this blessed second person of the Trinity is seated at the right hand of God to represent you and me. He came down to earth and did all that and rose again and ascended into heaven and it was all planned before the world for you and for me. Do you still say you're not interested in theology? Do you still say you have not time to be interested in doctrine? You will never begin to praise God or worship or adore him until you begin to realize something of what he's done for you. Now, understanding a lot of doctrine doesn't necessarily give you love for God, but it's hard to have great love for God if you have little appreciation of what he actually did. And that's why we sing some of these weird songs. I know some of you are brand new tonight and you're like, what are these weird old songs? 
You know, some of them are old hymns with new music so that we could keep singing them today. Um, some of them dropped out of use and hadn't been sung in a long time. And we're like, we need to sing these. We need to sing songs that are more honest about the struggle. You see, the, problem, the big problem with that let go, let God is it says the Christian life is easy. And if it's not easy, you're doing it wrong. And the problem's with you. That's a lie from the pit of hell. The Christian life is hard. It's hard. So we want to be honest about that. And we also want to have songs that are clear, that are explicit about the gospel. Do you catch that verse we sang? I, I loved how the, the, the energy in the room um, went up a little on that verse of let us love and sing and wonder. Let us wonder, because this really is the only appropriate response. Let us wonder. Grace and justice join and point to mercy store. That means the storehouse of mercy. When through Christ, uh, when through grace in Christ our trust is, and that's the only way it happens, by grace, Justice smiles and asks no more. Like, again, God smiles at you because Jesus did everything to secure the smile of God. Our hope is not that God's in a good mood today. We know that God smiles at us because Jesus lived and died in our place. And we know what Jesus thought, or God thought about the obedience of Jesus. It was enough. Otherwise, he'd still be in the grave. But he was raised for our justification so that we would know, we would know. Let's uh, pray and then we're gonna sing a, a last song that reminds us again of this gospel.